Okay, here we go. On March 25th, 2012, lecture discussion number 62. And before we begin with today's text, I need to mention, for the sake of the Internet listeners, I've already announced it to those that are here, that Lindsay and Eric's unborn baby Paige has not survived. Medical testing determined that she died on or before Friday, March the 23rd, 2012, and the cause yet to be established. She was 21 to 22 weeks old, 7 ounces, 8 inches, and was beautiful and fully formed. And now you know why I continue to push the subjects that I do. However tedious, however dreary, and however arduous as they may be, I continue to push them because I know. I know that death is coming. And see, today I ask myself, what would little Paige Chronister want? Her grandfather to say, this is a world marinated, saturated in death. And the church has got to be a place that gets it. It's got to be a place you go that's a refuge. Not from death, because obviously death is in the church. We're dying. But the church must be able to explain death, the why of death, or if you will, the cause of death. And then the church must know the solution to death, and the church has got to scream out the solution to death and declare the solution. Now, that's a person, by the way, the one who ends death, Jesus Christ, Jesus the Christ, probably better said. The Ancient of Days, the I Am, the Word made flesh. And he asks you this, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? Because every day, death. Never a day without death. So, I pound away. We are fearfully and wonderfully made, Psalm 139.14, unique and distinct, the combining of two substances. We are soul-spirit, which is supernatural, and then we are the natural, the physical body. It is the mind and the body. And you need to know by what process, when does the soul combine, become... uh, become interactive, if you will, with the body. When did that happen and how does it happen? See, I know. I know when the soul comes to the baby. I know when Paige got her soul, got her mind. I know how it happened. I can explain it. I believe it. It is obvious to me. I understand the two entities, the mental properties and the physical properties. We are consciousness, we have subjectivity, which is self-awareness, we know who we are, we have intelligibility, intentionality, and we express all of that through physical processes. That's how it works. So physical data is received, input comes in, then interpretation of that information occurs, 
understanding and meaning is then assigned. That's the, that's the system. And you need to know that the interpretation, the understanding, the meaning, all of those are non-physical. All of those are irreducible. If you learn one word in the last few weeks, I hope this is the word. Irreducible. Irreducibility. You have to know what that means. Because that teaches you when you understand it that mental processes are separate entities from physical processes. And if anything, you say it every day to somebody. Certainly your kids. And if you ever go to a funeral and somebody asks you, what do you think of the death of your granddaughter, Mr. Chronister? <sighs> Irreducibility. Temporary suspension of the physical system. But the mental system, the soul spirit, the entity that I'll call the soul spirit, survives. Physical death comes every day. So you have to understand irreducibility. I cannot reduce a mental entity, a mental process, understanding Meaning, a thought, love, I cannot reduce it to a physical particle. That's important to know. That's evidence of the soul. So the supernatural, non-physical self or soul or spirit or mind, whichever you want to do, it's working in concert with the physical machine. In Page's case, the physical machine is dysfunctioned. But the, but the spirit mind is still in existence. The two distinct substances interact. They're entangled. And as you know, I have created satirically what I have called Chronister's first and second laws. Chronister's first law is my response to emergentism. That's the fallacy that says that non-physical entities are the results of a physically reducible process. In other words, they say that the mind emerges out of the physical brain. That is a fallacy. You cannot get a non-physical substance from a physical substance. It is not logical and it is not possible. Chronister's second loss of the continuity of the soul in the mind, which is my response to those who teach that the soul spirit is either annihilated or rendered inoperable at physical death. And that's a position, as you know, that is contrary to Scripture and is insulting and disrespectful to the character of God. God won't do it. You need to know why He won't do it. But He won't do it. First and foremost, it's not good. So He won't do it for that reason alone. But there are other reasons. Do not call into question God's absolute goodness. And if you do, it's heresy, it's blasphemy, and you should shun it. If you don't shun it, you will be someone who will bob and weave through the wind and the oceans of life. And I don't want that for your family or for you, because death is coming. And you don't know necessarily when. Sometimes it is extraordinarily unexpected. So the answer, when the phone rings, 
By the way, as a math person, and as somebody who sees so much of this, I expect it now. And when the phone rang, I knew what the phone meant. And my answer is what? The mental entities are irreducible. And therefore, not subject to physical death. The continuity of the soul must be true because of the goodness that it requires of God. And thus is true because God is good. And no other explanation can exist based on that alone. But if the continuity of the soul is not true, there is no resurrection and no means of self-identification. That can't be possible. Why? Because God is good. I have irreducibility and I have the goodness of God. And I hope you all understand those two at least. I hope you do. Where then is little Paige? What's happening to her? Little Paige Chronister was escorted, just like you will be, just like I will be, unless that rapture thing sometime this weekend which is my other plan, by the way. But she's escorted. She, which is, we are never described by the Bible, by God, as being a physical entity ever. We are always called a spiritual entity. Her soul, spirit, mind, her being, made of a supernatural substance, has survived the physical death of her body. She is immortal, just as all of us are. And her destiny, her destination, is into the presence of her Creator, escorted there uh, by her heavenly uh, assigned angelic beings. I know she's there because she's immortal and she did not reject Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, because he is absolute, pure good, has a system in place for her where she is nurtured and educated and she grows and she has growth of personality and development of her mind and she waits for what? Do, does she believe that he is the resurrection and the life? Yes, yeah, she does. So she waits for her resurrection of her body and the recombining of her soul, spirit, her mind with her body and she is put back into service. That's the plan. And she waits for her family just like all of us will so that we will be forevermore as God intends. Okay? That's how it works. It's not much fun. Not what I would have chosen, obviously, but it is what has happened. You do not pray for God to exempt you. That's putting him in a position of subject of subjection to your will. You pray to not be exempt. You pray to be able to handle what is inevitably here in a sinful fallen world.
Help me deal with it. Death is coming. Okay, on to James chapter 2. Finally, maybe. Does that mean it's in the book? It's in the list. We'll see if I get that far. Does that mean that we are done or through with the subjects of uh, substance dualism? Nope, it doesn't. Human will is expecting us. I have to get to human will, and we will be discussing human will and the significance of human free will. If you have a position that says human will is not free, you're in trouble. And I know there are many large churches. The website that we belong to, as you know, uh, features pastors of some of the largest churches in the country that do not believe there is any human free will or any angelic will, that everything is predestined and that God is the author of sin and evil. And they go to James too to get some of that. Well, what am I going to do to it? Beat it like the garbage it is. No offense, okay, I'm offending people. But I'm not in a good mood today. I'm not a happy person. Do not tell me that my granddaughter is burning eternally in condemnation. What a load of crap that is. Makes me mad. Makes me mad that so many people are being taught that junk. And so many people... Believe it. And they end up with this position that God is what? Evil. Heartless. Arbitrary. Capricious. The opposite of what he is. You end up with this hopelessness in your life. Or this arrogance. Either one. Two things God asks us to be. Humble and good. I see no humility in that position and I see no goodness in it. That should render you suspicious right off the bat. But free will, angelic and human, it lurks just ahead. It's in James 2 as much as all of the others are there and it requires much from us. Human will does. No simple, quick, nor fun is the subject of human will or accountability or judgment. But we'll deal with it because we're... That's our job. But first, uh, James chapter 2, we're going to have to read the applicable passages and make the prerequisite accompanying list. This is one of those boring list days that I have to do every now and then. And I do them so that you will get in the habit of making your own list as you read the Bible. If you're not making, if you're not picking out words as you're reading Scripture, chances are you're going over it in a way that it doesn't have the full meaning to you. And I don't want that for you. So we're going to make our list. And perhaps, uh, oh, well, let me say, re- remember how we got here. We are at James 2. Why? Why are we at James 2? Do you remember? It's been a long time. I've been promising James 2 for a couple of months. Why are we at James 2? Because of Romans 4. Some will say James 2 is in conflict with Romans 4. So that's why we're here. This is the Romans, uh, of, of, uh, Romans study after, after all. And some will say James 2 is in authority and in conflict with Romans 4. And that, by the way, is subtle irony. You might not know that right now, but you will when we get there. So hopefully you will find it so. Uh, but just as I wrote this page or a couple of pages here as I got to this point, so it's a few final thoughts before we read the passage. King David, used by God, 
inspired by the Holy Spirit to write Psalms 139. That's the fearfully and wonderfully made passage, the curiously wrought, the substance yet unformed. King David writing that, uh, that, writing that, that part there, wonderfully, fearfully, curiously, substance yet unformed, he connected it to something. Do you know what he connected it to? Most don't. He connected it to the thoughts of God. How many thoughts that God has? He connected it to the infinite, incomprehensible size that is God's thought. So he said, fearfully and wonderfully made, human design, curiously wrought. Actually, he was talking about a a yet-to-be-formed child. That was himself. So he connected his forming in the womb to God's incomprehensible infinity, the size of his thoughts. So, ask the obvious question. Why did David link together the infinity of God to the design and construction of a child in the womb? Because that's what he did. And I want you to know that many before us, you see, have stared at wonder at the size of the universe. We can do that now in a way that we could never imagine doing it at any other time in man's history. We can stare at the size it's extraordinary what's out there. And many before us have just been able to look at what was there that they could physically see and they marveled at one aspect of it. It is so massive. Just what we can see is massive. Then we have the, the extraordinary structure that's behind that. It is uncountable. Yet, it is not infinite. It is governed, by the way, by what? By that famous ubiquity of law. Ubiquitous laws govern. It is a governable mass of incredible, unimaginable, incomprehensible size. So what's the obvious question? Why did he make it? He made it and it is visible. And he made it so it is so large that we can't even fathom it. Why? Because, you see, we being what? Dumb. We would have made what? The earth. And stop there. Oh, maybe we stop. We need a heat source. So we would have built the sun. And stop there. And my proportion. Then we would have built the moon just just for something to look at at night and stop there. That's good. We got what we need. That is not what he did. This unbelievable, unexplainable creation. Up to this point, and I believe that we will find this to be the truth, where is the life? This to you? Nowhere else. Why did he do that? Oh, the, the, uh, the wackadoodles are going to go all over me now because they say, ooh, yeah, we, we've got multi-universes and we've got all kinds. Of, but sorry. Right now, here's the facts. There's life and it's here. That's it. 
Now, why did he do that? This incredible amount of material. And this is where the life is. Why? What I want you to understand is that that massive amount of structure is governed by his laws. And the universe, therefore, is a testimony of the sum of God's thoughts. He runs it. How big a machine is it? He controls it. He built it. He has all of these little parts in it. Trillions and trillions of parts. And he's got it what? under control. He knows how all the pieces fit and what they do. So that you would look at that incredible machine and go, I am without excuse. You are without excuse about what? His existence. His creativity. Now, whenever one contemplates the size of the creation, then one should Come to Romans 8:22 and 24, or 25. Sorry, 8:22 through 25. All of this creation does what right now? This incredible, massive structure does what? It groans and labors. Why? Because it is under the curse of what? Death and sin. By the way, that's re- that's what death and sin. That's redundant. Sin is death. Death is sin. You can just say sin, or you can just say death. All of creation groans and labors as we ourselves groan, waiting for the redemption of our bodies, the blessed hope, the expectation of the unseen, the spiritual reality. That is what is being taught in Romans 8.22-25. through 25. But all of this that he has created, all of creation groans and labors. All of us groan and labor. And once again, the connection between the sum of God's thoughts and the design and construction of the human form, just like Psalm 139. Why is the human form and God's infinite thoughts put side by side? And I submit that this is the human will or will itself that is being addressed. Because death and sin comes from what? It is derived from will. Unless you say it is derived from God. So those are your two choices. Death and sin... By the way, I have talked to people. They don't come here very much anymore. They'll show up occasionally, especially if we move the time. They like to come and fight with me. Uh, But I have talked to people that say that death and sin is really good. Because they have to do something with it. They have to make sure that uh, because they assign God as the author of it, they then have to make it good. So next time you see the death of a child, you stand up and say, look how good that is. Good luck with that. The next time you say, ooh, that child is going straight to condemnation because God has predestined children of certain ilk to go straight to condemnation where they are forever tormented. And that's good. 
That is the ridiculousness of that position. It is either God or it is will. And it is not God, so therefore it is with his will. Now what's the question? Whose will? Who has will? By the way, it is obvious to me, we have, as you would expect, we have Eric and Lindsay's two dogs, Riley and Lucy. One thing is obvious, Lucy has will. There's no question about it. And Lucy also believes, without any reservation, that she is smarter than me. And, and we are in a struggle to find out if her hypothesis has any merit. And right now it's hard to discern who's winning. That is an extraordinary little dog who definitely has will. Now, does she have the will to reject God? No. So when I'm talking about free will, I'm talking about the will to reject God. Who has that? Lucy has the will to reject me. and She exercises it continually. That's the difference between whatever she is and a lab. If you want a dog that loves you and will do what you say, get a lab. Don't get a border collie. They will reject you. Unless you like rejection. Anyway. Groaning and laboring is the result of sin. That is the result of the will to reject, the will to rebel, the will to be against, or what's called before God in Scripture. Before God, against God are interchangeable. All of creation and all of humanity, groaning and laboring, which leads us to the most obvious of the obvious questions, or what is called the solution question. How much must be done in order for the solution to sin to be good? What does he have to do for this to be good? I will give you the human idea. I have an earth, and I have people on it that don't like me. What do I do to them? The human would be to destroy all of it. Obliterate it and then do what? Start over. And this time, what mistake won't I do? That I I won't give them any will. I'll make them all robots that go, yes, we like you. That is not good. You understand? You'll see that dramatically... um, Dramatic theodicy. You'll see the dramatic theodicy of that all over the Old Testament, won't you? Where God will say to Moses, I will blot out Israel. Is he really going to blot out Israel? No, he's illustrating his goodness there. He is in the role of justice. Moses in the role of mercy. The conflict between love and mercy. What must be done in order for the solution to sin that has caused all of creation, all of matter to be uh, groaning and laboring? What must be done in order to fix all of it? How many pieces must be fixed? How many pieces are there? They're uncountable. Who, who, Who can fix this? Who can go around and fix trillions and trillions of pieces? Who even knows what they're supposed to do? They all have to be fixed. Uh, 
I took a part of stereo when I was about 12 years old because I was certain that I understood Magnavox better than the Magnavox Corporation. And I took it out of its cabinet and I disassembled every single piece of it knowing that I could put it all back together, which I didn't, much to the dismay of my mother, much to the delight of my father, who said, this boy is going to be a darn fine electrician, which he repeated almost every day from thereafter. And he turned out to be reasonably correct. But I couldn't put together a stereo system back together that had maybe a hundred pieces. Who can fix trillions and trillions and trillions? How many things are broken that were made? And therefore, only one can do that. Okay? The solution has to be pure good. There's only one solution. There's only one who can put the solution into place. And it must be pure good. Except no solution to this problem posited by a theologian that fails to meet the requirement that the solution must be pure good. And remember, goodness incorporates what? It incorporates justice and fairness. Without justice, there is no goodness. And therefore, judgment of sin will, will occur. It has to occur or there is no goodness. Do you understand that? Do you understand that if I, if I allow unjustness to go on without uh, uh, judgment, that that is not good? And so it must happen. And that's much uh, to the dismay of the monist or the physicalist. They want to avoid judgment of all kinds, of any kind. They want a life that has no accountability, even though they will admit to you that they have a will. Though, as you know, some say we don't. The physicalist will say we don't have will. Very often. And that's why we'll have to uh, resurrect that topic. But again... How much repair is required? What is the size and the scope of the sin problem? The groaning and the laboring problem? Who is able to deal with it? And do you see now, I hope you always have, but do you see the importance, the recognition of the immensity of the problem requires that Christ be God? You ever, ever take any of the deity of Christ and set it aside for any reason, the sin problem can't be dealt with. Too many pieces. That is why the kenosis position of Philippians 2.7 cannot stand. And that is why I gave you Exodus 21 last week as your homework assignment. How many have, have solved Exodus 21? Do you even remember Exodus 21? That is where if I beat the slave for two or a couple of days and he doesn't die, then I'm not punished. And you need to understand it. Because why? Because it takes you to where? That's right. James 2. Exodus 21 explains the law of the altar. And that's Exodus 20. And the law of the altar is subsequent to the Ten Commandments. So here's your order. The Ten Commandments, the law of the altar... The law of the slave who chooses permanence forever to be in slavery and is pierced before the city leaders at the gate of the city with an awl in his ear. 
Okay? So, the law of the altar, I'm sorry, the Ten Commandments, the law of the altar, and the law of the slave who chooses permanence. And then the law of the eye for an eye, or the tooth for tooth, the life for life. There's your order, okay? The end of Exodus 20 and the and Exodus 21. Deeply mysterious. It cannot be understood. If you take Christ out of it, you will not understand it. Can you see that the one who is pierced at the gate of the city with permanence, who is in this position of physical servitude forever and is pierced, can you see who that is? That is clearly Christ. It's a picture of Christ. So you have to at least know that. Now the beaten slave, who's that? That's Christ too. So if you try to read Exodus 21 without understanding that there are uh, omnipresent pictures of Christ in it, then you will be deeply troubled by it. And you will come to a conclusion like this. You will say, this passage makes no sense and is therefore what? Bad. We'll throw it out. Every time I get on the internet uh, with regard to certain uh, football players who now play in New York, it says he believes in a God that says it's okay to beat a slave as long as he doesn't die. Well, if he does, if he if he dies after two days, then that's okay. He believes in a God that is what evil. He believes evil things. That's what they write. Because they do not understand Exodus 21 is, starts out with a picture of Christ after we go by an altar, okay? Have an altar. Well, let me get it, let me put it on for you so you see it. Sharon does not believe that this board exists. She just has faith. Yay. I have the Ten Commandments. I have the altar. What is the Ten Commandments? What is the altar? Ooh, Christ is in every single commandment. He is the altar that follows the commandments. Then I have the slave that is pierced, the pierced slave. Okay? Oops. Yes, that's correct. The pierced. Okay? And then I have the beaten slave, if you will. But I still have the slave, don't I? So who's beating the slave? Did Christ, by the way ever get beaten? Why? Why did he get beaten? Was the beating successful? No. What was the purpose of the beating? The purpose of the beating was to do what? Did the Romans on their three-day weekend, I'm being funny about that, don't hold me to that, want to go and haul this guy up the road and put him on a road and all that work or did they assume that they could beat him and he would die from the beating, like most of them did? But he didn't die from the beating, did he? How hard do you think they tried? What does this have to do? Where in the Bible can I find the beating of Christ? Where in the Old Testament can I find it? I can find it at Exodus 21. And if you don't know that, then you say stupid things on the Internet. Nobody corrects you. Why doesn't the church rise up and say, hey, the purpose of Exodus 21 is to talk about the beating or the suffering of Christ. How come no one ever responds that way? I dare you to find one post that says Exodus 21 and the beating of Christ are the same thing. Dare you? You won't find it. How come? What is wrong with the church? The church is filled with who? 
It is, it is a catastrophe that is prophesized in the Bible, isn't it? That at the end of the age, we would have a church that cannot function, that doesn't even know what it believes, that is absolutely childlike, babies with milk bottles, getting blasted every single day. That's what we will have. That's what we got. Is that good news? Good news for me. Sorry about Anna. (laughs) They beat him and 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 what happened? I have a great answer. Nothing. What do you think they thought of that? Tried to kill him. But the real question is, is why did he let them do it? And that solves Exodus 21 for you. It's very complex, very mysterious, as is all the Bible. If you start that way, looking for Christ, you find it. Exodus 21 solves one of the first, or one of the four. See, there's four questions uh, with regard to the Christ. Uh, he chose um, in his plan of salvation. They go in this order. As you know, I have the suffering, then I have the crucifixion, and then I have the burial, and then I have the resurrection. Okay? What do you ask about each one of those? Those four are part of his plan of salvation. Why did he do this? Would you have done that? No. Not anything we would think of. God's thought or not our thoughts. But why did he go through a suffering process? Why did he pick crucifixion? Would you pick crucifixion? What would you pick? Anything probably than this. What did Thomas, by the way, pick? Being pulled apart by horses. I don't think I would pick that either. These were men that understood things. Peter... Hey, I want to be crucified upside down. I wouldn't have picked that either. But they really got it, those apostles. They really got it. They understood physical death and the survivability of the mind. They really have it. Had it solid. Paul, hey, light me on fire. I'll be a torch. That'll be cool. Why did he pick Crucifixion, he has a reason. What's the number one reason, by the way? He got to go where he wanted to go. He got to have his feet on top of the skull of Goliath, on the very mountain that Abraham is going to be mentioned in James 2 about, where he took Isaac. Okay? That, but he also had two guys with him, one on each side equidistant from him. That was important to him. Um, all kinds of things going on. Why did he pick burial? Why did he pick, you know, why... His resurrection, because as you know, there are many, many uh, sects today that do not believe he was bodily resurrected. But he, he has to be. This is, by the, just to make sure, this is good. And it is the only possible way it could have been done. Exodus 21 explains that one, suffering. Tells you what's going to happen and explains why. And by the way, This nicely sends us to James 2, as I started to tell you, which begins with the context showing favoritism to the man with gold rings and fine apparel and showing disrespect to the poor man in filthy clothes, showing partiality, 
Romans 2.11 says definitively, God is not partial, has no partiality. But James 2 is going to do, going to start with partiality in contrast to that. And, uh, and, and it's going to return us to the rich man again, the rich fool. I hope you remember the rich fool. We covered it a few weeks ago. Just in case you think I don't have a plan, I know you think that. It's okay to think that, to be suspicious. By the way, I noticed the lady in the purple hair on the news. Um, You know, her ministry is now being uh, declared to be completely fraudulent. She has hundreds of millions of dollars that they have rattled away. So, anybody listening to me on the internet, quit sending your money to these gadflies that are got purple hair and sit in big thrones. They're crooks. Now, they can sue me. They won't dare. I'm judgment proof. That's why I resent them. No, I, I resent them because they're criminals. They have criminal minds. And they prey on the weak. They prey on the ones that can't figure things out biblically. And they destroy them for their own gain. And they have Hundreds of thousands of dollars in garbage strewn all over the place that we, that they call toys. They love their stuff. They are rich fools that are taking advantage of the church. Lovers of money. And they are the opposite of God because lovers of money, a rich man, if you will, is a symbol for the opposite of God. Loving money is the opposite of believing God. Loving money is the opposite of dualism, if you will. Loving money or rich fool are those who do not believe God exists. They are the physicalists, or if you will, the philosophical evolutionists of today. Okay? If that if that doesn't make sense to you, how I got from loving money, the love of money, First Timothy 6.10, to uh, monistic thought processes, or, or focusing on physicalism, or hedonism, or narcissism, see Lecture 56, uh, February 12, 2012. You might remember as we went about collecting and comparing all of the rich men, because that's what I started to have you do. I wanted you to understand that rich men is a symbol. We did it because of 1 Timothy 6.10, because what does he say there? He says the love of money is the root of all evil. There's something about the love of money that is the root of all evil. And I will tell you that it begins in one, one aspect of it is the denial of the spiritual aspect of the human construction and the spiritual aspect of God himself or the creator aspect. So loving the physical, that becomes monism. That becomes saying that there is only physicality. There is no spirituality at all. There's, no phys- or there's only a spiritual reality. No, uh, I'm sorry. No, only a physical reality, no spiritual reality. It's being physically based. That is what the rich fool or the rich man begins to typify. Because it's craving control and power over others. That's why you love the money. You think you're going to get stuff. You're going to be the purple-haired lady. And you're going to have all this stuff. And you're going to have fame. Why do you want fame of men? Why do you want men's adoration? What's in it for you? That's physically thinking, not spiritually thinking. God does not desire that of us. He does not want us to crave control and power and enslavement over others. Thinking in great delusion that... uh, you can be or I can be an owner or a possessor of things. We can possess nothing. What are we? Do we own the vineyard? 
Do we own the grapes? Do we own the wine? Do we own anything? We own nothing. What are we? We're employees. You like that? Learn to like it. Is that what that, the opposite of that is the rich fool. We're the stewards. We're the workers. We own nothing. We don't even own ourselves. He owns us. And by the way, Paige gets that. If she returned to her owner, her creator, her heavenly father. How good a job is he going to do taking care of her? Pretty good. Compared to me. Do not love the physical. Do not love money. That's what loving money is. It's loving the physical. So you see this now, this continuity, this connection between 1 Timothy 6.10 and Exodus 21. Maybe you don't see that, but also James 2. Hopefully you're going to see how they all fit together. Okay, let's go and take a run at James 2 and make our list. What is this? This takes a lot of time, and it is boring, and it is... Difficult, I know it. I, I wish I had the talent to make it what it really is, which is extraordinary and exciting and, and life-changing, but I can't do that. It's not, it, it's not the text's fault, it's my fault. Uh, and that's just how it's going to have to be. But if you understand James 2, one of the biggest traps used by the con people with the purple hair, you, you at least won't give them any more money. That would be good. Just one time I would like to hear this statement. The poorest man in the city is the pastor of the church. I never heard it. Boy, look at that old jalopy that pastor drives. I don't see that very often. Why, that pastor only has three boats. How does he get them? He gets them because he's got suckers in his congregation. It makes me furious. I am not very physically formidable anymore. I know it. But i still got a couple of days left. So if one of those gentlemen would like to come and try me, I'd be willing to hope that that's my day. I'm ranting. James 2, my brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. Partiality bad. What's it mean? Gotta know. For if there, if, if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings and fine apparel, what do we got coming into your assembly? You have a physicalist, a rich fool, a symbol of monism coming into your assembly, right? And there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes. Who's he? And you pay attention to the physicalist with the fine clothes. Uh, Every time I see a seminar, how to make yourself rich by doing nothing. Buy my book. Who's that make rich, by the way? The guy with the book. What do you get? Kindling. <laughs> those, 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 by the way, are filled. And how does he look? Does he ever go up there looking like a guy that just got hit by a bus 
No. How's he dressed? He's dressed good. How about his watch and his jewelry and his chain around his neck? I'd like to grab that chain around his neck. See how strong it is. Who's in this group? I promise you it's filled with Christians. Just every one of them is sucker tattooed right on their forehead. Because here it is. The rich man with the fine apparel and the gold rings. You watch these guys on TV. How do they look? Does this describe the televangelist of the day? Sure does. Only thing left out is the purple hair lady. Gosh. And you pay attention, but the filthy clothes, so you have, you see this contrast, the poor man and the rich man. And you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes and say to him, you sit here in a good place. And you say to the poor man, you stand there. Or sit here at my footstool. Have you not shown partiality amongst yourself and become judges with evil? He's calling partiality evil. Evil thoughts. Listen, my beloved brethren. Has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which He promised to those who love Him? Now let me say really quickly. Are all rich people evil? No. There are rich people who have money who are not physicalists and monists. Who are not loving the money. How many of them are there? Not very many, baby. It isn't the money. It's the love of the money. The love of the money turns you into a physicalist. But you have dishonored the poor man. Do not the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts. In other words, do not the rich seek to control and enslave you. Don't they want power? Why do they want power over you? Because they are what? Monistic. That's why they believe this is it. They don't think there's any accountability. There's any judgment. They don't believe they have a spiritual side. They do not believe that their mental entities are distinct from their physical properties. Do they not blaspheme that noble name by which you are called. If you really fulfill the sovereign law according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You do well. But since you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one, he is guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak, and so do, as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says, someone says, that's a key phrase in James 2 in understanding it. He has faith, but does not have works. Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, there's another key, what do you have to do now? Figure out who these someones are and why are they saying these things? 
And are they right? Someone will say, you have faith, but I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. In other words, let me repeat that. Show me, show you. Who's missing? Or show God. Who's the me? Who's the you? Why are we showing each other stuff? Does God need to be shown things? He sees things. What gets shown? Does the heart get shown? Can I show you my heart? You believe that there is one God you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. But do you, but do you want to know, oh foolish man, notice the rich and the foolish man tied together here again, that faith without works is useless. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with the works? And by works, faith was made perfect. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. If you don't understand that sentence, you will have a very bad doctrinal problem. Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? So as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. So there you have the solution there, by the way, at the end. Now, I was going to put the list down. I'm just going to read it to you because I'll put it down next week because I don't want to take time doing it. Partiality. That's how it starts. That's the context. Partiality. That's why I read it all. All that stuff someone says, someone shows, someone show me, show you. Someone will say the body without spirit is dead. All of that is in the context of partiality. All of that. So you have to understand right off the bat. There is no partiality with God. All of that has to do with the rich fool and the poor man. And then this man, this rich man, symbol of unbelief in the physical reality, a symbol of unbelief in God as, as spirit, unbelief in God as truth, okay? He comes. And a poor man, who's he's a symbol of? Who are the poor of the flock? Zechariah 11.11. 11. Remember that lecture? The poor of the flock in Zechariah 11.11, 11, they are the ones who know who Christ is. They know he's who? They know he's God. That's what it says. That's who the poor are. So the rich fool is the symbol of the physicalist, if you will, for lack of a better term. The ones who are focusing on the physical nature of the world and themselves, the hedonists, the Nicolaitan. That is who the rich man is. The poor man is the one that knows that Christ is the Word made flesh. Okay? I left out judges, didn't I? Yeah, become judges with evil thoughts. Judges. Takes me back to Exodus 21. Number F, if you're following along on the internet. Rich in faith, spiritual, as opposed to rich in money, which is physical. That's the next uh, line in the list. Heirs to the kingdom. By the way, which kingdom? You have five kingdoms. You have to figure out which kingdom this is dishonored the believer. 
by, by showing partiality to the physical thinkers or the physical uh, focused. The rich monist oppressors. The rich fool, again, symbol of unbelieving. The rich blaspheme God, number M, or letter M. How so? How is it that the rich blaspheme? As it says so. Do they not blaspheme? How is it that they blaspheme? How does a monist blaspheme God? He denies the physical reality, I'm sorry, the spiritual reality and the existence, the very existence of Creator God. Doing so is blasphemy, it's hatred. And then you have this, uh, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That is uh, literally uh, a sovereign, oh, I'm sorry, it's sovereign law, not royal law in case you see that. And uh, it's Leviticus 19.18. And then he says very clear, show partiality, you commit evil. So partiality is evil. Why seating a rich man who is adorned at the front and giving homage to him and casting aside the poor of the flock? I hope you see why one is evil and one is uh, uh, is, a, is a, the poor of the flock is the one who recognizes the deity of Christ. If you don't do the whole law, it says uh, item Q. If you don't do this one point, you're guilty of all of it. And then this linking of adultery and murder. You'll notice that Christ does that in Matthew 5, 21 through 30. There's a relationship between adultery and murder. Why? What's adultery to God? It's abomination. What's abomination to God? It is what the Antichrist does. The abomination of desolation. What does the Antichrist do? He puts himself in the temple and he says what? I am God. God calls adultery. That's what abomination, adultery, same word. I have a physical created being who declares himself to be God and what happens to the world? They all believe it and they all worship him. So again, we have this adultery. And then if I have adultery that is that, that element in it, why is that murder? Every time I convince somebody uh, that, that there is some other God or there is no God, what have I done? The spreading of adultery is murder to God. So that's why those two are all together. The law of liberty, I think you're going to see that is a grace-based description there. Mercy and judgment. Someone says, one of you says, needed for the body. Faith and works. Someone will say, show me, show you again. Show God is not there. You believe, demons believe, fools Abraham in Genesis 22, where he is sacrificing Isaac, and Abraham in Genesis 15, and finally Rahab. There is your list. Let me run through it really fast again for, without me adding my editorializing. Partiality, a rich man, a poor man, judges with evil thoughts, uh, the poor of the flock, if you will. Rich in faith versus rich in money, hairs to the kingdom. Dishonored the believer, rich oppressing uh, oppressors, the rich blaspheme God. Leviticus 19.18, partiality is evil. Uh, and conviction, whole law, one point of the law, guilty of all if you fail at that one point. Adultery, murder, law of liberty, mercy, judgment. Someone says, one of you says, 
needed for the body. Faith works. Someone will say, show me, show you. You believe. Demons believe. Fools. Abraham at Genesis 22. Abraham at Genesis 15. And Rahab. There's your list of the elements of James 2. Now, salvation determined is the belief side of it. Your salvation is determined by your believing. Your salvation is demonstrated by your understanding. I'm sorry. A bit long. Getting tired. Your salvation is determined by what you believe. Your salvation is demonstrated by what you express. Does that make sense? I demonstrate my salvation by how I express my salvation. I have an interpretation and a meaning and understanding and intelligibility and that's converted into physical expression. That solves James 2. Does that make sense to anybody? Anybody still with me here? Probably not. The piercing of the all, or the all piercing the ear in front of the judges at the gates of the city is what kind of procedure? It is a physical procedure. It is an expression of what in the slave? Of a commitment. It is seen by men. It is witnessed. It is testimony. That solves Exodus 21. The beating of the slave is testimony. Of who? Who is testifying while he is beating the slave? Is the slave testifying? Let's narrow it down. No. That solves the suffering. Let me repeat it. Salvation, your salvation is determined by what you believe. Then what you believe is expressed by what you demonstrate. So, is what you're demonstrating saving you? No. What is saving you? The spiritual side is saving you. The physical is an expression of the spiritual. Okay? That solves James 2. We'll do more next week. Now back to Exodus 21. The ear is pierced in front of the judges of the city, at the gates of the city. It's a physical procedure. It is witnessed. It is an expression of what the slave wants to testify of. What is he testifying of? He's testifying that he intends to be a slave forever. Why? Because he loves his family. And he loves his master. That is a picture of Christ. Next week we'll read that text. But understand the piercing are the what? The crucifixion is a testimony of what? The suffering is a testimony. Who's testifying here? Christ is testifying in the crucifixion. Of what he believes. It's a physical expression of what he believes. He allows his crucifixion. Who's testifying in the suffering phase? The Romans are. 
Who do they represent, by the way? Did they think he was God? If they did think he was God, would it have mattered to them? What were they testifying of? Man's desire to what? Man is so stupid that he thinks he can do what? He can beat God to what? To death. Man desires to kill God. So that's how those two are related. That is how the slave pierced after the altar and the beating of the slave fits together in the four phases of the redemptive work of Christ with regard to the crucifixion. So, I hope you get that. Suffering is witnessed also, isn't it? And it is physical testimony of man's mind expressed. It's revelatory. Man's what? His hatred for who? For the very one that creates, the very one who sustains him. Let's rise and be dismissed.